Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Thank you, worship team, for those wonderful songs. Amen? Yes. yes. And uh, great singing to the congregation this morning as well. Well, happy Fourth of July uh, weekend. Tomorrow is Independence Day. Hard to believe, isn't it, that we are that far along in summer. I think it is well for us to remember that um, um, God truly, in his providence, uh, rose up this nation for the purpose of being a light around the world, uh, not just freedom, but the gospel, because we've had freedom and religious liberties that uh, have allowed us as a nation to be a primary sendor to the nations for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that, we are grateful and we should ever be uh, praying for our leaders and for God to uh, work among them that we might live quiet and tranquil lives uh, in all liberty. And that's, uh, that's the purpose of our prayers for our leaders. So would you uh, join with me, please, as we pray and we begin our time in the word this morning. Father, we give thanks to you with all of our heart. We bow down toward your holy temple. We give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Where you have magnified your word according to all your name. We called to you and you answered to us. You strengthened our souls. You are the king of the earth and the king of heavens. And we give you thanks, O Lord, when you hear the words of our mouth and they sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For through you, O Lord, you are exalted and you regard the lowly, but the haughty you know from afar. Therefore, we humble ourselves before you this day. And we come and present ourselves to you as we have sung. We present our hands, our feet, our voices, our bodies redeemed for your glory. We present them as holy sacrifices acceptable to you because we have been washed and sanctified and justified. Would you accept our lives this morning? And if there is anything in our lives that needs correction, reproof, pray that your spirit would bring it to mind that we might confess it and acknowledge it and in the very moment receive pardon and assurance of pardon through Christ our Savior. We do pray for our leaders that they would lead in such a way um, led by the Spirit of God. We pray that you would place men and women of faith in places of leadership that we might, as Paul said, live quiet and tranquil lives and not lives of, of remorse and not lives of uh, great conflict. We pray for peace upon our land. So as we uh, finish up this last portion of uh, chapters 6 through chapter 6, verses 18 through 20 that we've been talking about, God, we once again remember that we have been redeemed the price of the life of Christ, and our bodies matter to you. Help us to understand that in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do have a Bible or maybe uh, an electronic version of the Scriptures, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have been in verses 12 through 18 for the last three weeks, and we're going to finish this morning verses 18 through 20. And so would you please stand as we give honor to the reading of God's word. We know that God is speaking when his word is read in the, the midst of the congregation. And prepare your hearts and tune them to understand, if you will, the word of God. And we're going to focus just on these last three verses this morning because they are um, have a lot to say and a lot of application for our lives. So First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, the word of God. Please give attention to its reading now. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's a theological truth we talk about all the time, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is a, a theological truth that the fact that God comes and lives inside of us, making one's body a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, could perhaps be the most remarkable aspect of our redemption. I understand that God loves us, and that is remarkable in itself because I know that I'm not lovable. And we know that he sent his son to die for us, and that is a remarkable thing, that he would give his only begotten son who would come to earth and die in our place. It is remarkable. And that he would then forgive us all of our sins, not by anything that we have done, but by his grace and by faith in him. It's a marvelous truth. But to live inside of us, Think of it. It it is life-transforming. At least it should be, should it not? Uh, Because it would seem that if God were going to dwell in my body, it would be after I die and I'm raised from the dead. Because then I would have, I would be loosed of the flesh. There would not be any sinful thing that dwells in my body anymore. I would be totally cleansed. But the opposite is true. When we are raised and with him, he, does not, he lives amongst us and we will know him once again as he was first known in the garden. But how does this happen? How can a holy God live in my flesh? I think it goes back, I, and the more I've been studying these verses in 18 through 20, the more I see how important verse 11 is in chapter 6, where he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, set apart, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Something had to happen to my body. Something had to happen to my soul. Something had to happen to yours in order for the Spirit of God to dwell in you. There had to be a remaking There had to be a washing, a sanctifying, a cleansing, a redemption. There had to be the justification so that Christ could live in me based upon his righteousness, not my own. So this is a remarkable truth that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, and that means our bodies are a holy temple. We could just say amen and go home and think about that the rest of the day. We really could. But it comes back to what we've been discussing the last couple of weeks. Your body matters. Your body matters to God. We cannot bifurcate the body and the spirit. For God has brought them together in redemption. And we will one day be raised from the dead together, whole, new bodies, redeemed, new bodies. And so, your body matters to God, and that's what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. And as we come to a close, and Paul draws this discussion about immorality to a, immorality to a close, he, we get the punchline, finally. Um, so let's look at four things. Um, and the first thing that we see that Paul says is run away from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Don't stand and fight against it. He says, run away. Verse 18, he says, flee immorality. Flee it. Run away from immorality. Don't just avoid it. Run away. This is not a time to be brave and stand. This is a time to run away when you are tempted with sexual immorality. And the, the command, this is a command, and in the original, we've d- discussed this many times, This type of command means keep on fleeing. Don't stop. If you haven't fled, start fleeing. It's something that you continually do in your life. 
And it is very strong. It is very abrupt. He's been talking about um, the body is for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. Uh, we've been joined to, to the Lord in body and spirit. You should, what, how horrible it is to join yourself to a prostitute because it, it destroys the image of marriage, and et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden he says, flee immorality. If you haven't gotten the point yet, he says, here's the bottom line, flee immorality. Remember, immorality is the word porneia, and it means any kind of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. So he has, he started chapter 5 with, there's immorality among you, and that immorality is incest. Last week he said there's immorality among you, and that immorality is men going to prostitutes. And here he goes back just to the general word, flee all kinds of immorality. So temptations to immorality were so strong in Corinth, Paul felt it necessary to, to, to that strong, evasive action was necessary to avoid falling to sexual temptation. And so it is in our culture. We are bombarded every day with images and sexual innuendo. Everything is sexualized. And uh, with an image, we can sin. And they're everywhere. On the Internet and TV, movies, billboards. Go on and on and on. Therefore, those temptations being so great, decisive, bold action is necessary to run away. And the reason to run away, he says, is every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Interesting, isn't it? We often hear people say, well, every sin, all sins are equal. Sin is sin, and every sin is equal, and that is not the case in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, some sins have harsher penalties because... They have greater consequences, and that is true in the New Testament as well. There are some things that you do that you can't undo, and things that you do that will hurt other people and hurt yourself, and sexual immorality he places in a special category from other sins. We sin against our own bodies. As I was studying this, um, there was one commentator who said, there are probably 20 to 30 views of what this actually means. What does it mean? That every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man commits uh, sin against his own body. We know that Jesus said this, Do you you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and is is eliminated? They were talking about eating food that was washed without uh, proper cleansing. But he said this, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. They come from within it. And so what Jesus was saying, all sin originates in the heart. That's where it starts. But when it comes out, when immorality comes out in our flesh, in our bodies, we sin against our own bodies. So there may be lots of views as to what this means, but I think in Bible interpretation, context is always king. And what what has Paul been talking about? Context is king. He just said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be, God forbid. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, which is what marriage is all about, which is a picture of the gospel in Christ. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with her. So yes, when we participate in immorality, we are defacing the gospel. We are defacing marriage. We are defacing the very pure purpose of sex that God had. Marriage is a picture. Sex is a picture of marriage. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Christ and his bride, and he is jealous for the purity of his bride. Us. He is jealous for our purity. Sexual immorality is a unique sin that involves our redeemed bodies. 
a body that is joined to the Lord, of which two becoming one flesh in marriage is a picture of the church being joined to Christ and his bride. That's why it is a sin against our own body. Because it was designed, that is, the sexual relationship was designed for pleasure. It was designed for procreation. And it was designed for the proclamation of marriage as a picture of the gospel. Therefore, because it is so great and so good and so central even to our redemption, sexual immorality in our own bodies is different. It is unique. Yes, there's alcoholism and drug abuse and gluttony and all sorts of things that involve our body, but he says the immoral man sins against his own body. We need to just take Paul at his word, ultimately, right? That it is a unique sin. And there are negative effects to immorality in our lives. Um, Romans chapter 1 talks about God giving people over to degrading pass, uh, um, passions, and they, they reap the, the recompense in their own body, he said. But even for us, uh, even for Christians, we, we have a godly woman in our congregation who speaks boldly, and humbly about her background of promiscuity after becoming a Christian. She was promiscuous before becoming a Christian. And she speaks very openly about how it has affected even the sexual relationship in her marriage. You can't undo what you have done in the past. You can't unring that bell. Yes, you are forgiven. Yes, you are clean. But, but the, the memories are there. And there, I know that some of you are going, yeah, I know. Because not, every, not everyone is pure on their wedding night. And praise God for those who are, but praise God for God's cleansing. For those of us who are not. Because we take what belongs to God, that purity... Because we have been bought with a price, because the body is for the Lord and the body is not for immorality, and we give it to a stranger, and we, we defraud our future spouse. And you can't go back and undo that. It's done. And that's why um, I, have, I appreciate this woman who is very... Um, some of, she has talked to some of you younger women. Listen to her accounts, because she, she glories in her salvation and in the cleansing of Christ but knows, like anyone who's lived a life of profligation before the coming to Christ, you can't undo those memories. And you can't go back and undo those things. But God, in his faithfulness, restores us. That's why he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. And that's where we all stand today. The great example, I think, is probably the life of uh, Joseph in Genesis uh, 39. You know the story. Joseph was sold into bondage by his brothers, and he was a very talented man, uh, and God had his hand of blessing upon him. And because of that, he was hired and was in the house of Potiphar. And uh, it says this about Joseph. Now, Joseph was, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said to him, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put, me, put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He ran away. He fled immorality. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew 
to us to make sport of us. He came to into me to lie with me, and I screamed. She charges him with the very thing that she was guilty of. This would be, in today's parlance, sexual assault, that she assaulted him. But he fled. He did the right thing before God. And what did it get him? He was thrown in jail. But he did the right thing before God. He fled immorality. One of the problems was he was alone with this woman. It was beyond his, his, uh, his control at that moment, but he was alone. And then this temptation was day after day after day after day. Some of you understand that. Those temptations can be day after day after day, but run away. And that's what he did. That's what uh, Joseph did. He ran away from that uh, woman who was seeking to... to uh, to trip him up. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read, I'll put it on the screen, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And some of you say, oh, that would never happen to me. Oh, I would never do such a thing. Could happen to any one of us. Any one of us. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. When you are faced with a temptation, there is a window of opportunity. You know how you resize a window on, a, on your computer screen? You can resize it like this. Well, it's resizing like this, that window of opportunity for you to escape. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and you better jump through that window as soon as you can. Why did he run away? Why did Joseph run away? Because he was probably tempted. He's a man, after all. And to just think that he was not tempted, that's why he ran away, because he was tempted. And so as that uh, window of opportunity is shrinking, we all should jump through that and run away from the temptation. Notice verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The two are closely related. These are the only two sins in the, in the New Testament that say that we need to just run away from them. We don't have to stand toe-to-toe and just duke it out. It is a spiritual battle, and we are told... Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But it's well for us to run away from these sins. The story of the young man in Proverbs is another example of foolishness, of how sometimes we think that we can just stand and fight. And, and there's a story in Proverbs of the young man who, who says, I'm just going to go by the way of the woman. You know, I'm on my way to work, but she lives over here. I'm just going to drive by her house. And he puts himself in a position of temptation. And so it says in verses 22 through 27, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, nor stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. The Old Testament Proverbs talk about the seriousness of sexual sin. By the way, it's not only women that are temptresses, okay? It goes the other way as well. As we said last week, immorality is an equal opportunity sin for men and women. Avoid situations that place yourself in a place of temptation. Now, not everyone struggles particularly in this area. Some of you struggle with pride. Some of you struggle with materialism. Some of you struggle with drinking. Some of you struggle with, with eating too much. But if this is an area of your struggle, this happens to men and women alike, but men and young men most likely, don't stay up late surfing the Internet doing research. Be careful. 
you're always one click away, going like the ox to the slaughter. It is there. If you are dating or if you are engaged, don't be alone in your parents' basement. It's not wise. You're only asking for trouble. You're putting yourself in a place of temptation or alone in the apartment. Yes, if you are engaged, you have to have some time alone to, to talk and to, and to share life's dreams and struggles and, and plan for the future, but do it in a public place. Because the hormones are raging when you're young and you place yourself in a place of temptation, you will get bitten if you are not careful. Make sure that you are in a place where others can see you. That's why, by the way, we have windows on all the doors in our, in our church building. When I first came here, there were no windows, and we, we changed that for this very reason, to make sure we could see into every room and know what's going on, because the human heart finds a way, doesn't it, to sin, always. When I, was, uh, when I joined the Navy as an active duty chaplain, I'd been in pastoral ministry for nine years, and I thought I'd seen everything under the sun when it came to counseling. In the first three months as a Navy chaplain, I saw more things you know, I just could not believe. And there were two themes. One was divorce, and the other was adultery. Those were two themes. And by the way, I wasn't working with church people, okay? We're talking about sailors and Marines. And I was at a base where we had airmen and soldiers as well that would come. And I did a lot of counseling. But by observation, I learned this, that you all need to be careful of. And that is that um, uh, what would often happen in uh, adultery cases is you would have two service members, and the Navy does a good job, the military does a good job with equal opportunity, men and women and, and the races and people being able to progress as a, in a meritocracy. But oftentimes, a male and female are put together in closed spaces to work for 12 hours together. Nobody else is around. And what I learned from that is that intimacy is like an onion. And there are various levels of that intimacy that you can peel away. And on the outside, we, you know, we see each other on Sunday mornings, and there's a level of intimacy. You have friends. It's a, another level of intimacy. You have um, children. You have brothers and sisters. And you get further and further in that intimacy. And you, then you start to get in the layers of that onion, intimacy between a man and a woman. And when you have two people spending a lot of time together talking, it's not always about physical attraction. That's why you need to watch out. Because you may think, well, I'm not physically attracted. Not always about that. If you are in a situation where you start to peel that layer of onion, where you are sharing something with a member of, an opposite, of the opposite sex that, you, that is reserved for you and your spouse, maybe you haven't even talked to them about it, and you begin talking with someone else about something that is so intimate that it is reserved for you and your spouse, you are on thin ice. And it, again, it doesn't have to be about sexual, physical attraction. That's just, that's, that's the snare at the end. But the bait is that. So be careful. Be careful about uh, talking to a member of the opposite sex about um, intimate issues in your life, particularly if you are dissatisfied in your marriage, which most people are to some extent. You are married a sinner, right? And when you start talking to a member of the opposite sex about problems that you have in, with your spouse, you are like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Be careful. So... Run away. There's no shame in running away. Run away. Second of all, your body is God's holy temple. Your body is God's holy temple. And this is the ultimate reason to flee immorality. And the ultimate reason of everything that Paul has said so far 
He basically says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know, and this is the sixth and final time in this chapter. Remember, there have been six times where he says, do you not know this? You should know it. I spent 18 months teaching you the gospel. I sent you another letter. You should know it. But for some reason, they are living and acting as if they don't know these truths of the gospel. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have from God? Again, remarkable. Remarkable truth, isn't it? That our bodies are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The, the think of, I want to think a minute about what is the temple. What is the purpose of a temple in, throughout the scriptures? The temple is the place of God's presence and it is the place of worship. The place of presence and the place of communion of God's people. It is the sanctuary where God comes in his presence and he meets with his people in communion and worship. That was the purpose of the temple. I appreciate uh, Alan Ross's uh, um, contribution to this in his excellent book on worship, who draws these all together, that the first place, the first sanctuary on earth was the Garden of Eden. It was the Garden of Eden. It was a sanctuary. It was a place where God's presence came to Adam and Eve and they communed with God and there was nothing standing between them because there was no sin yet. And so there was this perfect uh, uh, relationship that they had in the Garden of Eden where the presence of God was such that he would come and talk to them face to face in a theophany, of course. And there was communion with God and man. The second is the tabernacle. The tabernacle, which was designed, uh, uh, given to Moses uh, on, on the mountain, and he gave him the pattern to, to, to make it. And the purpose of the tabernacle was for that presence of God, and that God's, God would dwell with his people. So they built the tabernacle. And remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud? Um, when it moved, they packed up and they moved. When it moved, they packed up and they moved. And they always set up the tabernacle because that was the place of meeting with God. That was the place of his localized presence. That was the place that he would manifest his glory and people could commune with him and worship with him. But it was temporary. And so he enlisted Solomon to build the tabernacle. Excuse me, the temple. And the temple would be the permanent place. In 1 Kings 8:12, it says, Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. It would be the place where God's presence would be, that he would live. But later in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Solomon says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, how much less this house which I have built. The heavens can't contain all of God, let alone the temple, but nevertheless it was chosen by God as the place that he would come and make himself known in the presence of the people. It would be sanctuary in communion with God. It would be a a, a wonderful uh, manifestation through the glory and the cloud of God that God was present with his people. The sanctuary was the place where heaven and earth converged. Isaiah, in the sanctuary, he peered into the, 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 the heavenly places and he could see God in, on his throne. The Lord was in heaven, but he was manifesting himself on earth. And so in, in chapter 8, I invite you to read First Kings chapter 8 and read how, how um, um, Solomon says, I think seven times, he says, we will pray toward this place and you will hear us in heaven. And so you see it converges, the presence of God on heaven and on earth in the temple. And then with the construction of the temple and the tabernacle, you have the courtyard, which represents the world. You have the courts where God's people come through the courts with singing and praise. And that's where they, they, they could come with prescribed sacrifices. They could only enter that place if they had done that which God had prescribed them. Then the holy place 
that only the priests could enter. And then the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could enter. So we have the garden, we have the tabernacle, we have the temple, we have the incarnation of Christ. In John 1, we've read it and studied it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacled. He was temporarily tabernacling with us like the tent of of the Old Testament. And we beheld his glory. They saw the glory of God in Christ incarnate because he was the temple of God come to earth. And he said, when I go away, I will send my spirit. And so the final temple is us. Wow. Final temple is us. Our bodies are God's holy temple. What an incredible truth. Should that not change our lives dramatically? That should be something we rehearse every morning of every day. I am the temple of your Holy Spirit who is in me, whom I have from God, because it is all of grace. You didn't make yourself that. You didn't make yourself a temple. He made you that. It is the work of God's grace. And you hold all of that up against immorality and you go, oh, God forbid. The holy temple of God, the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. And so we live throughout the week in these bodies. Everywhere we go, we we represent him to our neighbors, our workmates, our friends, to strangers. And on Sunday mornings, though this may not be a sanctuary, you are each one. And as Paul said in chapter 3, corporately we are a temple of God. Individually, each of us are a temple of God. When we come on Sunday mornings, this is the manifestation of the presence of God. That's why worship, corporate worship, is so important. It is not an optional part of the Christian life. Gatherings of the saints is essential. So that's why during the pandemic it was so egregious for those outside the church to say, you cannot meet. We must, because it is the gathering of God's people. We cannot not gather to, for the, the presence of God to make himself known. Because when we come together in a very unique way, yes, God is everywhere and you can go fishing on Sunday mornings and he's going to be there, but he's not there the same way as he is here. You know it. When you come on Sunday mornings and we sing, don't you know it? When you come into this place and people gather in and we begin to pray and sing and you hear the voices and the music, don't you know it that God is here in a unique way? Of course we know it. That's why we are to sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs by the power of the Holy Spirit. For he is working on Sunday mornings here through us. This is not a basketball game. This is not a concert. This is not a political rally. This is the the gathering of all of God's saints indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so the manifestation of God is here and it is real. And it is life-changing as well. So, run away because your bodies are the temple of God. And third, your body belongs to him by redemption. Your body belongs to him by redemption. And he says, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. You don't belong to you. It's not your body. This whole nonsense of my body, my choice for the Christian, no. You don't, it's not your body. It's his. Because he bought you. You were a slave of sin. And he redeemed you. And now what are you? You are a, a, a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ. This is a master that we can be proud of and say, I am glad to be 
a servant of the Most High God. I will happily submit to him and serve him in every area of my life because I have been bought with a price. And what is the price? Somebody tell me, what is the price? Yes, the life of Christ. 1 Peter 1 says this, Knowing, you know this, we know, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, in the slave trade that he bought uh, slaves with silver or gold. No, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were bought with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is our redemption. We are set free. We are set free not to do whatever we want. We are set free to serve a greater master, our Lord Jesus Christ. The slave, according to Paul, should not be concerned about his or her current state of slavery. In reality, he or she is not the slave of just anyone. We are freedmen of Christ. That's who we are. Freedmen who belong to Christ because he bought us. And the answer is the cross. The answer to this whole debate about immorality is the cross. This is what Paul's answer is in the book of 1 Corinthians. He started out by saying, you have, uh, you have all these divisions among you, and this is not so. You're acting like the world. You know what the answer is? The answer is you need to get back to the cross of Christ. We preach Christ crucified, and it is the gospel that holds us together as one. And all these divisions, that's the way the world lives. And as for immorality, he says, that's the way the world lives too. And you think that you can just go to prostitutes and, and, and be proud about immorality in your midst? No, the answer is this. The answer is the cross. Because you're not who you used to be. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God, your body belongs to God. By right of creation, because he made you and he owns everything, and by right of redemption. And we are glad, participants of that, that we come and we present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to, to God, and we do that gladly. Finally, your body is for God's glory. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's verse second part of verse 20. That's how he ends the whole thing. Therefore, since you have been bought with a price, therefore, the Spirit of God lives in you and not your own. Therefore, since you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, glorify God. In your body. To glorify God means to make him known everything about him, to put him on display, that people would know him. And by the way, this is the positive side of flee immorality. That's negative. Positive side, instead of just doing that, glorify God in your body. Put something positive. Replace fleeing with the positive of glorifying God in your body. Because our bodies belong to God and they are to be used for his purpose. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. We'll get to that in chapter 10. But these verses do not um, appear or exist independent of one another. Paul is making a point when it comes to sexual immorality. Glorify God in your body. When it comes to idolatry, glorify God in your body. In all that you do. This is a matter of stewardship. Because it is not your body. Just like it's not your money. They're not your children. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's not your time. Everything that you have comes from him. And everything that we do is stewardship of all that he's given to us. It is a matter of stewardship. Now our culture worships youth and beauty, right? Right? 
problem is not everybody's beautiful and not everybody is healthy. Not everybody's young, not everybody's beautiful, but our world, our culture worships at that altar. And that sets us up for a disappointment. Because daily we are given this ideal of what our bodies should look like. And so we become dissatisfied with our bodies that God has made us to dwell in. So you have two extremes. You worship your body, which is advocated by the world, right? And you hear people say, well, my body is a temple. That's only true of Christians, okay? So people worship their bodies. Or you can neglect your body, and oftentimes people use spiritual justification to neglect their bodies because God doesn't care about the physical. God only cares about my heart. You've heard it. Maybe you've even said it. It's like the old joke about the Baptist preachers who love fried chicken, right? And they're always self-deprecating about, oh, I just love fried chicken. (laughs) Ha ha. Gluttony is no joke. No joke. And and by the way, um, if people struggle with weight, I understand that. There are many reasons for obesity. And um, some people have physical things that are wrong with them. Some people have inherited it from their parents. There are all sorts of things for why people struggle with their weight. But understanding that you need to struggle at some level that your body matters to God and what you put in your mouth, whether it's food or whether it's medicine, drink, whatever, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. There's overeating. And you know what? Ladies, there's undereating too. And both can deal with you not treating this body properly that God has given to you. And so there is this tension between worshiping one's body and neglecting one's body in the name of spirituality, between obsessing about your body and and everything is about beauty and diet and exercise and that's all you ever do, and the other extreme is ignoring your body because God doesn't care. There's got to be some balance, right? There's got to be some right view, and that is to treat your body with the respect that it is redeemed by God. It's not your body, it belongs to him. Can't worship my body, but I can worship God in my body. And we should each and every one of us take good care of our bodies. You know that I have had some interest throughout most of my life in, um, in fitness, and I've always been motivated by this passage. I've always thought that I want my heart to beat long and strong for Christ. I want to live as long as I can on this earth and serve him. And so I'm going to take care. I'm going to, I'm going to run and do the things that I can. I'm not always the best at it, but that's been my motivation. And I realize that God knows the number of heartbeats in my life. He knows how many times I will breathe, and you as well. He knows how many days you will live. Still, I will be held accountable. And that's where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility just collides a little bit, okay? We are stewards of what we have been given. So, take care of yourself. Eat properly. Get proper rest. That's another one of those things. Uh, Sometimes people, it's a badge of honor that I only get four hours of sleep a night. Really. In the military, the old saying is, oh, you can sleep when you're dead. I don't think that's a good use of of your body. Proper rest, proper exercise, proper diet, common sense, folks. Because you have been redeemed and your body matters. So, 19 through 20, these verses, they get also at the heart of the creature-creator dichotomy. We do not worship creation We do not worship ourselves, our culture does. We worship the creator of all things in our bodies, with our bodies, for his glory. And once again, as we conclude this morning, the answer is the cross. The answer is the cross. Brothers and sisters, 
I urge you to take up the bread and the cup. And this represents to us a real truth, not some Greek dualistic idea that Jesus didn't really live in the flesh. He came in the flesh. He really shed his blood for us. And we are to live now in our bodies for him and to glorify him in our flesh. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to this family table. This is the place of sanctuary. We are a temple of God, and each of you who believe in Christ, we each one have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we proclaim this truth of the gospel together, and we do so gladly that we are washed, we are sanctified, we are redeemed, we are justified by Christ. And we can do this with gladness this morning. If you are not a Christian, perhaps this is the moment that you believe. And you say, God, I am a sinner, and I turn, and I repent of my sin, and I believe in redemption. I believe that Christ is your Son who died for me. Gladly, then, partake with us at this table as a brother or a sister in Christ. Father, we are grateful for the teachings of the Apostle Paul We thank you, Father, for the sanctuaries, the temples that we have seen, the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, Christ incarnate, and now us. And us looking forward because we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in that day, he will dwell with us, his risen body and ours. And so, Father, we partake of this with gladness and thanksgiving, knowing that we have been washed and redeemed, that we are your children, and we look forward to the day when we will drink and eat new with Christ in his kingdom. In his name, amen.